and welcome to the Squiggly Animation Podcast. It's a holiday special extravaganza where we'll be hearing from Jay Grace, the director of Ardman's Shaun the Sheep, The Farmer's Llamas, as well as Michael Rose, producer of Magic Light Pictures' latest film, Stickman. This is Ben Mitchell, joined by Steve Henderson for the last Squiggly podcast before the holidays. Feeling festive, are you? I'm feeling very festive, Ben. How are you, how are you this, this holiday season? I could not be more holly or jolly if you inserted a Christmas tree in me and plugged in the lights. Well. Symbolically speaking, of course. Thank God we don't have to test that. Well, the, the day is young. <laughs> Uh, oh yeah, I'm really looking forward to this Christmas. Uh, it's been a it's been a hard slog for both of us this year. Uh, personal projects, Squiggly's gone from strength to strength, and uh, it's time to relax and just enjoy uh, Christmas this year. I'm really looking forward to it. Yes, we've earned the shit out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, we won't be too um, comatose to enjoy what's on the telly. And we've got a few guests in this podcast, as you said at the top of the show there. Uh, who we're going to be speaking about, about, uh, you know, the, the, the very best, the finest animation that's going to be on um, TV uh, this Christmas. And we've got them, Ben. We've got them on this podcast. We're the ones to turn to. Exactly. In this holiday season. If you've got an animation Christmassy thing, Squiggly Podcast is the, the, the ones you call. And call they did. I look forward to speaking to them later on. So yes, more on them later, more on the uh, Christmassy specials and, and whatnot later, but... Uh, What's been happening in the, the slightly longer break since the last podcast, uh, we kind of uh, needed a bit of downtime between math and uh, what I've been doing respectively, which is uh, kind of a demanding mistress, shall we say, as demanding a mistress as Squiggly already is, this sort of had extra demands. So uh, yeah, we didn't have a podcast at the end of November. So what's been happening since then? So there's been a couple of trailers, uh, particularly released recently, that have uh, of interest to me, but not animation trailers, although they do have animation in them. You've clearly seen the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles trailer, Ben. Nope. No, I don't believe you. I've seen a still of it. Right, okay. Well, here's what I've seen. They, they finally put Bebop and Rocksteady in a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film. Yeah. But they wait until I'm a 32-year-old f***ing man. So I'm not gonna, you know, why didn't you do that in 1989 or whenever the f***? Instead of, like, those other two, I don't know what they were called, but they weren't Bebop and Rocksteady. It's ridiculous, isn't it? And now they bring him back for the new version, at an age when I don't really give a s***, but I I can feel (laughs) anger about it. Yeah. You know, on behalf of poor, young, uh, adorable me. (laughs) They were fantastic characters in the in the show. They were, you know, the larger than life henchmen, and and it's it is nice to see them in finally in the film. I didn't see the last film. I'll be honest. I didn't. I think you know. I didn't make a, a beeline to the cinemas as soon as it came out. Um, but yeah, it is nice to see some familiar favourites there. We'd like to to, to get in there with the in animation news, don't we, Ben? Uh-huh. Well, you know, I think the reason why you didn't see the first film, and I didn't see the first film, and I think an awful lot of people. I mean, we're not representative of most men in their 30s in the sense that we... we aff- uh, there's a lot of um, time and attention afforded to, well, cartoons, obviously, films and TV shows for younger audiences than I think most people our age would, would sort of have spare, you know? Mm-hmm. 
because it's of the line of work we're in. But there's some stuff that comes along that's just kind of ugly, and I was really quite underwhelmed with how they had sort of taken that premise and the super slick, over-designed look to it. I remember we talked a little bit about it when I talked to the guy who did the... um, who's doing the current Nickelodeon show. It was a few podcasts ago. I think it was at the beginning of this year. And how they were producing the films sort of, you know, simultaneously as the show's being produced and how they're... Really, there's a quite big difference between how both sort of camps are approaching the same idea. Mm. And he had some interesting perspectives on that. You know, what disappoints me sometimes about social media. If I ever actually try and think about something I'm going to post, it always disappoints me. Yeah. Because it's, ne- it's never a good response. And so what I thought I would do to be puckish and delightful, I have a whole bunch of digitized home movies. So I put together like some old home movies of me and friends playing Ninja Turtles and just put them up on like Twitter and Facebook. Like, hey, the new Ninja Turtles trailer looks great. The people will click on it and see this, you know, these kids playing Ninja Turtles. <laughs> it wasn't my best work. But it was like, it was, the, it was you know, the sort of, the idle thoughts of, of minutes, you upload something to Facebook. All I got was people reading the thing that says the new Ninja Turtles trailer looks great and agreeing with me. <laughs> no, it's a joke. <laughs> I don't actually think the new Ninja Turtles trailer looks great. So yeah, that's completely sullied my online <laughs> persona. People who did watch it probably just think I just have footage of kids playing, <laughs> wearing masks. <laughs> You've done a lot for your reputation, then. <laughs> you really have. Swing and a miss at every level. <laughs> <laughs> so the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles trailer has brought me nothing but pain and despair and misery, and I've not even seen it yet. <laughs> if they had it on TV, I'd give it... I mean, it's amazing how much time you give something if it's just on TV. Mm. I've given, like, entire five-minute chunks of time to just the worst movies ever made when they're just on there's one I saw. You might have a bit more information about this. When I was kind of in the, the absolute last stretch of this project that's been kicking my ass, I basically just had lunch breaks. And that was the only sort of time I sort of had, like, you know, 15 minutes to have a sandwich. And one day there was a, uh, this film. It was a sequel. I'm trying to remember what it was. Uh, it was one of those ones, uh, CG animation. It's really hard because the description doesn't narrow it down at all. It's animals. Right, it's a okay. bunch of animals. It's like a motley crew of animals. The two main characters are like a deer and this other deer that he's going to marry. And he's, what I picked up of the story, he's chickened out of marrying her or he left her at the altar or something. And now they're on this adventure together. So they're kind of bickering and they're trying to save this other animal that's trapped in a caravan. And Billy Connolly was one of the voices. Oh, you're talking about open season two, three. Yes, open season it was. Yeah. Dreadful. (laughs) I mean, was it like a straight to video sequel? Yeah, because yeah, oh, okay, yeah, the CG was so poorly rendered. It was like student film, bad student film quality. How many times has Billy Connolly cropped up in a film as an angry man? I'm sure he played the same role in that film as he did in The Hobbit. Yeah, and they were both in terrible CGI. So you know, what, <laughs> have you seen? Have you seen The Hobbit film? Uh, the first one. All oh, right, okay. And then we're talking just, about the new ones, right? Yeah, and you wisely gave in. Yeah. I just about managed The Lord of the Rings to be. Perfectly honest. Yeah. And the Hobbit, the whole approach with The Hobbit to, like, stretch it over three films, whereas The Lord of the Rings was condensed into three films. Yeah. Um, they, It's a very, very different type of pacing that I just felt was a bit too much, you know. Mm. But well, it has its audience. It's doing very well. So it wasn't good, are you saying, the one with Billy Connolly? 
well, Billy Billy Connolly turned up and and you know I heard his voice and I, I love Billy Connolly. I think he's great. Um, he's one of the funniest men alive. And um, he turned up in the film and I was like, that's Billy Connolly. And then it, really, it dawned on me that he was playing a CGI dwarf. All the other dwarves in the film are like have this fantastic, this fantastic makeup effect that that Weta have created to give them all you know big rosy cheeks and massive mustaches, all this kind of beards and mm. braids and all this kind of stuff. And yet Billy Connolly turns up, standing out like a sore thumb. This CGI crappy sort of thing with this with Billy Connolly's voice, and I'm watching it thinking. Billy Connolly's he's got a beard. He's got a, you know, he had to do is put a helmet on him. And So they didn't actually like use Billy Connolly's no. features or anything. No. They just But the other dwarves are actors. The other dwarves are actors, yeah, yeah. Oh. That's what, they did something with um Bob Hoskins and Ian McShane and a few other people in the film. It was a Snow White film. It was like, and the Seven Dwarves were like really known actors, but they just squished them down <laughs> with CG. Yeah. So it was Bob Hoskins and Ian McShane, and I think Toby Jones was one of them. Um, it was Nick Frost one as well? Oh, was he? Yeah, I think yeah, I that's, know that rings a bell about. actually. Yeah, yeah. I forget the name. It was one where Charlie's Theron is the bad guy, which right, yeah. I could quite happily watch. Mirror, mirror, or something. <laughs> probably. Yeah. So that was kind of an odd thing to to see. They probably could have done that sort of if they were gonna have it fit with actual live action performers they they could have maybe taken that approach with it yeah or like because he's he was he was riding a pig they could have done what they did <laughs> so so they could have they could have done like a bernie clifton or something and have him you know like with the guy with the ostrich this is why i can never see that film now because what what i'm picturing in my head when you're telling me that dwarf billy connolly is riding a pig yeah the movie's never going to live up to that <laughs> in reality <laughs> Yeah, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, but speaking of of uh, let's look at the other end of the scale of, you know, CGI dwarfs. We're about CGI giants, Ben. Have you seen the trailer to the BFG? I know you're a massive uh Roald Dahl fan when you were a kid. We had a, a big long chat about that with the uh well, a few pod fair few podcasts ago now. Well, I think wasn't everyone a Roald Dahl fan? Yeah. Although oddly my girlfriend isn't that into Roald Dahl. She likes some of the films, but she um I don't know. I find that kind of odd. Maybe it's a generational thing. But I loved Roald Dahl because of the, the darkness to it. Characters met very grim ends. You know, mm. And I think that that's something that shouldn't be shied away from in, in children's literature and, and fiction and stuff like that. I think that, uh, I mean, you know, think of all the Disney films where the bad guy just dies at the end. Like, you know, yeah. falls off a cliff. Edward Scissorhands debatably a kid's film, I would say it is. The guy gets stabbed in the lungs <laughs> pushed out a window. Sorry, spoiler alert. But 30-year-old film, you can, you'll live. Anyway, yes. Uh, BFG was one of the books I really liked. I think that I, I'm surprised I didn't watch the animated version that often. I would only sort of see it occasionally. Mm. And because he screened it uh, recently at MAF. It was part of the program there. We did, and my uh, my parents turned up to it for the last day. My parents showed up at the, the festival, and they saw the BFG, and they came out, and I went, I, I, I thought they'd just see it just to sort of get out of the way or something, and I said, what do you think to it? And my parents aren't animation fans. And my dad went, you know what? I used to just put it on to keep you quiet, but it's actually quite good, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so there's a the review from Brian Henderson there. So you can put that on the, uh, the poster for the Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I loved it as a kid. I, I thought it was great. The bit at the beginning 
absolutely scared the bejesus out of me the the bit with the hand coming in through the window and uh, and everything which forms the bulk of this trailer for the uh, upcoming Steven Spielberg and um, Disney uh, film mm-hmm. you seen it ben i did see that one you know scrolling down the old facebook feed and videos now just play automatically but i would have i probably would have given that one a watch anyway but it's all pretty much live action in the trailer and then you just see a big hand mm-hmm. not to give too much away but so you can't really be cruel or kind to it you know with the source material unless they completely bugger things about you know i did but they, you know that's happened i guess i i was pretty nonplussed with the ending of um the tim burton charlie and the chocolate factory because mm. the, the whole ending is so weird it's like the whole motives of the character are completely different and Oh, but they do, they do what uh, what they do in the book, which I loved when I in the book is uh, there's this brilliant um, Quentin Blake illustration of what happened to the kids. Oh yeah, after they were pulled out of the and they're all f- up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it shows them in the it went when you know Willy Wonka's showing them around the and you see them all coming out all you know the uh, was it Veruca Salt's all covered in. Sh- and you know, <laughs> Mike TV's all stretched, and it's all you know. It's it's, it's they're all just permanently mutilated. Yeah, they've been yeah. sort of like quote unquote healed, but they're all freaks now. Yeah, I mean that's like that's a very good example of yeah what Roald Dahl would do. They got their comeuppance for being shitty kids, mm. and really it's the parents who are the ones to blame. So they're kind of like <laughs> they're just victims <laughs> in every sort of conceivable respect. Yeah, just great. Just bad things happening to people who don't really deserve it. Yeah. That's what life is. It's how people like me thrive. (laughs) (laughs) That's nice that they kept that in, but there was this coda to it Mm. that, if I remember correctly, was completely added on about the the character of Willy Wonka and what he was doing. Oh, his dad. The thing with his dad. Yeah, he sort of became this Michael Jackson-y figure. Yeah. Like, the sort of, like, thing about, like, family and being a kid forever and uh, again this was like seeing it on tv mm-hmm. quite a while after it came out so you know and you know the ending of the original movie version was a bit weird as well but that at least i think was sort of consistent with the book that they they fly off into the sky and did you ever read the second book oh the great glass elevator yeah I, that was that was weird yeah i got a little bit of the way through it and because I was only young and my attention span is well, it's got worse if it's rather than better. But it's, it, I was reading it, I remember thinking, "The f is going on here? <laughs> Where are the impalimpas? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where's all the chocolate? <laughs> yeah, that was just like it's like a completely different. It was sort of like the Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey of <laughs> yeah. like book sequels because mm. they go into space and there are like these evil aliens that kind of like come on board the the elevator or I think they go to a space station or something and they I think they're going to kill them all and. At one point, there aren't Oompa Limpers, but there's this other, like, song. Uh, it's very Alice in Wonderland, like, the stories within the story. I remember there was one, like, sort of little uh, allegorical rhyme about a girl who ate all her grandmother's candy, but it wasn't candy, it was medicine, so she spends the rest of her life with the shits because <laughs> she ate all of grandma's candy one day. <laughs> I wish I'd have carried on reading now. That sounds, that sounds it's quite nuts. Good. I mean... It, it, <laughs> Again, I haven't read it since I was about six or seven, but it's... it's... I'd like to see Burton ta- tackle that. I'm kind of surprised he didn't, in a way, you know, <laughs> given how the, the Alice in Wonderland was kind of that sort of mishmash of both books, but also at the same time, neither. Yeah. I'm surprised he suddenly didn't take that approach, because certainly the second Charlie and the Chocolate Factory would probably have suited the Burton style, which is sort of an imitation of itself now, but... 
I don't really know that much else about this new BFG, though. I, I'm assuming that the giant will be a animated or mocap CG character. I, I well, it's been it's been credited to an actor, but I don't know if it's going to be um, CG or anything. We're yet to see that, but certainly the the giant hand and the when the character turned round and you saw his eyes in the hood, that's there's, there was a little bit to that that looked uh, unmistakably CG, but I'm, I may be wrong there. Um, but it's Mark Rylance uh, playing the BFG. Right. Um, but uh, Jermaine Clements in it as uh, Flesh Lumpeter, um, one of the one of the, the the horrible massive giants that you remember. Well, I certainly remember from the Cosgrove Hall um, BFG. Hmm. Um, I'd be interested to see how many kind of uh, cues they actually take from the Cosgrove Hall version, if any. Because if it's if it's sat there in in the kind of public consciousness as the adaptation of the BFG, such as uh, Cinderella, the upcoming Beauty and the Beast, and all these other films that they're making, they're not making Cinderella based on the Brothers Grimm Cinderella or anything else. They're making it based on the traditionally animated Disney version. So I'm wondering if they're going to be taking any cues in a similar fashion from the Cosgrove Hall version in this Steven Spielberg film. It would be quite nice if they, they actually did include more elements from the original Cinderella, but in the Disney version, just not warn anyone. Yeah. So at the end, when the sisters are trying to make their shoe fit, they slice open their Achilles tendon. Yeah, yeah. Get in there, you f- <laughs> <laughs> They could put that in a Disney film. <laughs> there's there's some great endings to Dis- the, the, to like the, the, what were the Disney source material. Like the end of, uh, was it Sleeping Beauty? She didn't get woken up by a kiss she was actually flung against a wall (laughs) (laughs) so that's one way to do it isn't it yeah Yeah. so yeah a fair few trailers on the go there it's gonna be interesting to see are you swinging by the old uh, cinematech to catch any uh, christmas feature films uh not to catch any christmas feature films i still want to try and get to see the good dinosaur Mm -hmm. which we've an interview with the director and producer on lightbox which has made a welcome return uh recently to the site yeah, there's a whole ba- there's a whole backlog of them, so uh, keep your eyes open for those. But yeah, kicking it off with uh, the good dinosaur there, and uh, yeah, it's it's sort of interesting. The tone of it seems a little not that Pixar-y in a way, and mm. it's but then that could be said about Inside Out if you base it on the trailers. Yeah, and I thought Inside Out was actually quite a a good film at the end of the day. You know, with some slightly um, pandering. Moments. Oh, they've, I saw this morning, because I get up in the morning now. It's weird. <laughs> it's this new thing I do. They sell the imaginary friend character as a toy. Mm. But it's such an ugly, like, I mean, it was quite well conceived as like a really ugly character, because that's sort of how kids would imagine a character to be, like without any sort of good design sensibilities to it. Yeah. So it looks fucking hideous as a toy. God, we, we saw it. Me and my brother were going Christmas shopping, and, and I, I gave an audible, <laughs> Because <laughs> it's like, what the hell is? Oh my god, it's it's inside out. It looks like it's inside out. That's 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 terrible. <laughs> it's a, what a what a sort of mistake. Even worse than the Peppa Pig merchandise that you hate. Then, yeah, the Peppa Pig doll kind of looks like the Eraserhead baby. <laughs> I remember I was going to go as the Eraserhead guy to a Halloween party once, and uh, I did consider, oh, maybe I'll buy a Peppa Pig doll and just like grease it up. <laughs> so the result would be sort of hideous enough to approximate that baby. Yeah. Yeah, what did you make of them? What did you make of the dolls, the, uh, the, the, the inside out? Well, I mean, I, the, just from that commercial, I just thought it was unnecessary to do that character. But, you know, if they can, they'll bleed it for as much as they can. They're still selling Frozen dolls that sing Let It Go. Mm-hmm. And 
not to be cute, but let it go. Yeah. Enough already with that song. Yeah. But it, people still love it, I guess. I just feel like it's uh, things are so ephemeral in terms of like what's trendy, you know, what's viral, what's a big hit. But that song won't bugger off. Hmm. Or can it go the way of, you know, what did the fox say or Gangnam Style? No, still every day. Yeah, the, the, the good dinosaur stuff's in there as well, in, in the shops as well. And it does look kind of odd. It seems like a bit of a summery film to me, as you say. It's out in uh, at Christmas, but... Um... Oh, yeah, I, t- I really like the look of that film. I should really go and see it. Now that now that my kind of life's back on track, I should go to the cinemas and see it. I certainly like the clips that you chose in the Lightbox video with Sam Elliott. Yeah, Sam Elliott's great. Anything where you can close your eyes and pretend it's the Big Lebowski is fun <laughs> fine with. And uh, Philadelphia was on TV a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Still a good film, even though it's a bit long in the tooth. But if you're in the other room... And it's, you know, playing in the next room. It sounds like a really, really depressing crossover between Toy Story and Puss in Boots. <laughs> I, like, uh, I just like the idea of Sam Elliott being told that he's, he's, he's finally, finally I've been approached by Pixar and, um, you know, they, they don't want me to play a cowboy. They want me to play a dinosaur. Oh, okay. It's a, it's a cowboy dinosaur. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, Inside Out looks like it's going to be doing well at award season. Because uh, that, that's coming up, isn't it, Ben? A Pixar film doing well at the awards season. Well. I think you're reaching there, my friend. <laughs> can I can I make a little confession about award season? Go, uh, go on. I do not give a shit. <laughs> I'm, I, I'm, I'm, I'm over it. You know? yeah. I, the most I've ever talked about Oscars is because of doing this podcast. And it, it sort of really hammered home just what kind of nonsense it is as far as i mean with the nominations that's usually quite encouraging mm. or the shortlisting you know it's sort of nice when they throw in some stuff that's kind of out of left field a bit but then they never really then go the whole hog and you know there have been a few exceptions you know harvey crumpet ryan ones that actually kind of have a real sort of sense of artistry and storytelling that is very very not mainstream but to the best of my knowledge for as long as we've been doing it it's been a yearly disappointment as far as who the winners have been. Well, a disappointment in the fact that it's always been the easy choice. Yeah, I think that's great that certain films like the NFB films, uh, If I Was God and Carface, um, which are, I think are really lovely films. I think that, uh, well, we played them at the squiggly screenings at uh, MAF to my delight because I don't think they've really gotten a lot of British festival exposure so much. World of Tomorrow, of course, I, I haven't been able to shut up about. <laughs> They're good, you know, I mean, loving the type of March Madness as well. Like, that was one that was, I don't want this to sound mean. I'm sure the directors would appreciate what I mean when I say that was a surprise in the pleasant sense. Like, wow, I'm surprised they had the sort of taste to pick up on that, you know. Mm. It's nice that something that doesn't look like a Pixar film, something that actually deals with, you know, quite intimate personal recollections observations about relationships and Hmm. that kind of stuff you won't really see in um i I haven't actually seen it but possibly not in sanjay super team or it's gonna i mean sanjay super team is gonna get through to the to the nomination i reckon yeah and and it's it it, it is a kind of thing that will be picked because it people look at the list and they'll look at the list and not recognize any of the titles and then look at the list and recognize oh pixar okay yeah, this is just a prediction. It'd be nice to be proved wrong, and I think last year we said it'd be nice to be proved wrong. So let's see if we're <laughs> proved wrong uh, again. I'm actually I'm looking at the shortlist again now, and 
truth be told, it's actually a more overall encouraging list than in previous years. There's a lot more films that I would say I'm a big fan of that mm. sort of made it than usually are. Because, yeah, okay, World of Tomorrow and Carface and Prologue and If I Was God and Love in the Time of March Madness, they're all, f- and uh, We Can't Live Without Cosmos, they're all films that I've seen and f- feel quite strongly about being good films, you know. And the others I have, I've not seen, but I'm sure they're perfectly good as well. Shall we move on to um, our guests for this episode? Yeah, let's let's let them have a get a word in edgeways. Now, uh, yeah, there are a couple of, because it is, tis the season, that's a couple of uh, Christmas specials on the old horizon. One of which is sort of quite Christmassy, and the other is just going to be on at Christmas. Fair <laughs> enough. Well, actually, to the best of my awareness, it's it's not that Christmassy, the new Shaun the Sheep film. Mm. Uh, I didn't actually watch all of it. I made a decision, because uh, I watched the first five minutes or so, and I'm like, you know what, I don't want to watch this in this low-res press screener format. I want to wait till it's on TV and watch it properly, because it, what I was gleaning was that the animation was so lovely that, you know, it deserved to be watched properly. Mm-hmm. That and the Wi-Fi connection kept dropping and it was driving me spare. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, the you know, the animation, I, I got to the introduction of the llamas. It's called the Farmer's Llamas, so that's not a spoiler, I don't think. <laughs> uh, I love the animation on the llamas. I think it's wonderful. It's been a sort of a banner year for Sean, really, hasn't it? It has. The movie and Sean trails. It's It's been, it is, it has been a, it's been a fantastic year for for Sean the Sheep. A fantastic year for Aardman as well. You know, um, next year they're celebrating their 40th. Um, so it's going to be a year of celebrations, no doubt. And and alongside uh, the Farmers Llamas, the Sean the Sheep uh, half-hour special, there's also going to be um, the Aardman story, which is a documentary with um, brand new animation. So there's going to be some brand new Wallace and Gromit animation in there uh, and others on, uh, on BBC One uh, on Boxing Day. Uh, it's called A Grand Night In, The Story of Ardman. So, and then there's going to be loads of celebrity guests talking about how much they love Wallace and Gromit and things like that. But it's also some new animation for the, the Ardman fans there. So, yeah, it's uh, it's a, been a great year for Ardman, great year for Shaun the Sheep. And this half-hour short really is the, it's the cherry on the cake. It really is uh, a, a great piece of work. It isn't Christmassy. It's going in that kind of Ardman half-hour uh, tradition. It's... It's fantastic. It's a great shot. You did a you did, you did with wise Ben in not watching the whole thing and ruining it. But I took the bullet for Squiggly and and for review purposes, watched the whole film. Well, you're also interviewing the guys, so you yeah, <laughs> it sort of makes more sense for you to watch the whole thing. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure it would have still been a very good experience watching it all the way through. It's just like you know, if the option is there, why not? Oh yeah, you know, I think that the quality of the actual animation itself does shine through. There's actually a bit more development for the character of Sean in this half-hour short than there is in the in the movie, I would say. The movie's more of a journey for the character. This one, it's more of a sort of a personality-led thing as he's influenced by these naughty llamas that you, um, that you, you watched up to. But there's some fantastic uh, animation bits. Um, did you see the bit in the auction house right at the beginning? Yeah, it's kind of interesting because... Uh... I think this is the first time in Shaun the Sheep. I may be wrong, but I think it's the first time we actually hear people speaking. <laughs> well, if you want to call it that, yeah. Because <laughs> they had usually just grunted, and there was it wasn't like the grunting was like this language of the universe of Shaun the Sheep. It was they were grunting because it was a situation where grunting would be the appropriate noise to make sort of thing. Mm. 
and and you know not led by dialogue or anything it's a it's a wonderful half hour worth of pantomime and slapstick and and you know all the good stuff shall we hear from the talents behind it let's do we're lucky enough to get some time with jay grace the director of sean the sheep the farmer's llamas he also directed the how to be a pirate extra segment for uh, for the pirates film uh, he directed the series, and here he is this Christmas uh, directing one of the jewels in the Christmas telly crown this year, Sean the Sheep of Farmer's Llamas. Jay Grace, thank you very much for talking to Squiggly today, here to talk about uh, Sean the Sheep, the Farmer's Llamas, which we're all very much looking forward to seeing this Christmas. Great, well, it's a pleasure to be here, Stu. For those who uh, live on a different planet and don't have never heard of Sean the Sheep before, could you tell us a little bit about who Sean the Sheep is and what can we expect from the shot? Okay, well, um, for, for those uh, people that don't know anything about Sean the Sheep, it's basically a series um, based on a character that first appeared in um, one of Nick Park's uh, shorts called A Close Shave. And um, he's basically a mischievous kind of 10-year-old aged sheep that uh, lives on a, uh, a farm in some kind of nondescript kind of uh, countryside area of, of uh, Britain. And um, it's about the antics he gets up to um, on this farm that's owned by a, a kind of slightly daft, um, unknowing farmer and um, his faithful companion dog, Bitzer. And um, they get up to all kinds of things, completely um, under the radar, and um, the farmer is, is unsuspecting. And um, it's, it's, it's basically uh, a slapstick silent comedy at its at its best, we hope, um, and um, yeah, I mean, he, he gets up to everything. He's 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 basically a mischievous child, and he leads all of his friends astray. Great, a, a great description. He he, he kind of uh, goes along that Beano tradition that uh, I think Nick Park established uh, throughout Wallace and Gromit shorts. But the Beano tradition carried forward with Sean being like a naughty schoolboy and. Uh, and, right. and particularly the llamas in this new short, but it gets a little bit dark, doesn't it? It does get a little bit dark. Well, I, mean, I guess what we were trying to explore with the half hour, the llamas, um, farmers' llamas, um, was, uh, you know, we, we know what Sean's like, we know the mischief he can get up to, but we thought it would be really interesting to explore what happens when he actually gets involved with some slightly older kids. So it's, it's basically the story of the impressionable kind of 10-year-old that sees these kind of, you know, mid-teenage older boys having a good time and they look, you know, super cool, great fun and he thinks, I want to be part of that gang. And it's basically the story about what happens when he manages to become part of that gang. He becomes enamoured with them and manages to somehow trick the farmer to um, to uh, get them back onto the farm and it's about what happens when he gets them back. You know, it's uh, initially great fun but he soon realises, as quite often younger kids do when they get involved with their older brother or, you know, the, an older gang, that he actually has no influence over, the, over them at all. And he's so used to normally being in charge, the flock, the rest of the, the sheep that live on the farm with him are, you know, they're his gang and he is pretty much their leader. And so for him to take him out of that place of, of authority and put him at the bottom of the pack, I guess, um, was a bit of a surprise for him, and it's about the about the consequences of his actions, really. I mean, it's a, it's a kind of classic story, really. You know, it's um, be careful what you wish for, um, and uh, you know, we kind of play that 
play that out on the farm and he obviously has to make some decisions that are difficult and try and put things right. I picked that up by watching it that it is basically the the classic tale as you say but what struck me was in the half hour I, I, I believe that this short explores more of Sean's personality and Sean as a character than the movie did. Now no disrespect to the movie the movie was a great capo it was a great uh, detective you know investigation chase movie Whereas this, it's it does focus a lot more on the actual character of Sean and and the reactions to the changes and that go that go on around him when these llamas are introduced to the farm. How did this story begin? I mean, the the initial idea for the story, uh, the the idea of having llamas was something that uh, Richard Starzak, aka Golly, had a long time ago. He came up with the idea. He thought it would be fun to to make a film with llamas. There was nothing else really attached to it at that point. Um, and then it got kind of um, it got shelved for a while really because he, he started working on the feature film um, and then um, the opportunity came up to do this half hour and um, uh, I was very lucky to be asked to be involved in it and I knew the llama thing was around so we kind of we pulled it, dusted it off, blew the dust off it and um, started to explore it and, and uh, one of the great things about half hour or one of the greatest greatest challenges I guess is that it's it's not long enough to tell a very complicated story but it's longer than the six minutes that you're normally left with for an episode where you can really only explore one simple gag and play it out over those six minutes because if you try and add too much it, it, it you, you you lose the fun the thing that makes the series what it is so this you know this was for me uh, an opportunity to explore those emotional things that you don't normally get to put into those six minutes and, uh, and I guess that's where we started kind of scratching scratching the surface a little, a little of Sean's character and, and, and starting to apply some of those more kind of deep and meaningful emotions that that, that a kid of his age might feel um, and yeah I, I guess that's why I, it's funny because you know as I, as I said to you before we started the interview it's um, it's it's one of those things where you, you've got this character and you've got this this um, scenario which people are so familiar with. So to then take him and explore something different is um, it's, it's a little bit it's a little bit scary at times because the audience has certain expectations. But I really really wanted to try and not make it just an extended six minutes episode, um, which is why we kind of started to uh, uh, delve a little deeper into his character, I guess. So what's the difference then? between directing a six-minute episode and directing uh, a special? Because you've done specials before. You did the Pirates special, uh, obviously, with heavy, yes. heavy in dialogue uh, with, with the Pirates special, I would yes. say. But uh, but to take a character that you're very familiar with directing the series and then taking that character and those, those shorts into uh, a half-hour-long uh, episode. Um, well, I mean, the process in terms of the filmmaking is fairly similar. I mean, you kind of... Um... Uh, you you'll work on the script. I mean, I, I work with um, uh, with a there was a kind of there was a, a collective of us really that worked on the initial um, stages of the story, and um, and then we uh, we had a writer called Nick Vincent Murphy who worked with um, uh, us and Golly to kind of develop it into a kind of shooting script. Um, so that's that's the initial stage, and then obviously we go through the storyboarding. But I mean, really, <coughs> excuse me. The actual process itself 
doesn't change a lot. The difficulties are, I think, and the, the hurdles that, that I personally had to kind of uh, overcome on switching from six minutes to half an hour is um, plotting that story out really, really clearly. Because in the six minutes, you can kind of you can kind of get away a little bit more, I guess, with uh, with the um, story arc not having to pay off in quite such a satisfying way, I guess, because you know it's quite it's quite often padded out with slapstick and comedy, and there's usually a simple theme which you can carry through that six minutes, and you know the punchline is is a, a little button on the end which hopefully works, but it doesn't matter generally if it doesn't because the story itself is is quite simplistic um, whereas with the half hour obviously you're kind of trying to you're trying to put in enough plot so that it's interesting for the audience but not so much that it doesn't allow for the things that that make Sean fun the you know the observational comedy and the slapstick and um, allowing time for for the setup of the of the um, of the drama, so that you can kind of actually bring it to some kind of satisfying conclusion at the end. So that that was the bit that was different for me on this project uh, to anything else that I've worked on before. Really, it's kind of getting getting the beats in the right place, so that when you do actually get to the point where you're paying them off, that that, that people understand why you're doing it. <laughs> this is a kind of a luxury of extra time, perhaps. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a luxury, but it's it's also it can be a little bit of a burden because there is that danger that you um, that you, you you're just treading water, waiting for the next um, kind of dramatic beat to come. And I really didn't want that to happen. I hope that doesn't happen in the film. You know, it's that it's that allowing enough time for the audience to enjoy the moment, but without it becoming um, overplayed and 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 and, and stagnating. Because um, it's, it's funny because when I when I watch the film back now, it is it's quite it's quite fast paced. You know, there's a lot in there for half an hour. I think we had something like 550 shots, which is quite a lot of shots in half an hour. Um, but at the time, you know, when you're when you're actually kind of putting it together, you're you're tr- trying to. Uh, I, I guess a lot of it comes from that um, uh, animatic phase as well, when you tend to cut things quite tight because it gets quite boring looking at a still drawing for more than a few seconds so you end up kind of with quite a lot more information that you need and um and the 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 part of the refining process i guess is you go through and you try and strip away the unnecessary stuff so that 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 was part of the process that was new to me really um doing this in, in comparison to the six minute episodes where we we very firmly have a a limit on the number of shots we can we can conceivably do in the time that we have um although having said that um we did shoot the half hour on a on quite a tight schedule as well i mean in comparison to other half hours that we've made at Arbman, it was you know it was a very short shoot so um you know there was a there was a definite awareness of, of what we could achieve in the time how, how long how, how long was the shot the shoot uh well the shoot from um beginning to end was just over 12 weeks so um, wow, it's, it's still quite a long time, but for half an hour, and trying to keep the production values up high, and and you know, try try and make it feel like it bridges the gap between the six minutes and the and the feature. I wanted it to be closer to the feature in terms of the production values and the um, and the and the, the, the visual quality of it. So um, yeah, that that was a challenge. You know, I have to say, it was a challenge to to 
to maintain that for for twelve weeks. That, that's incredible. The uh, was it the last half hour uh, that we saw from on Christmas Day from 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 Armin was the um, matter of loaf and death. That's right. Yeah. And I believe that was a year in the making. But obviously, was, uh, you have yeah, to construct I think the everything. For that was about ten months. Um, so yeah, I mean, we had considerably more time to make that. Um, but you know, I think Nick's um, Nick's approach to it is, you know, he's he's he's, uh, he's very definite about what he what he's trying to achieve. And also, you know, he's Nick Park, so there's a little bit more flexibility in in the amount of time that he can take to do these things. Um, but you know, there's talking in it as well. So that takes a lot more time. The lip sync, the you know, the handcrafted plasticine lip sync look that Nick has, you know, you could you really couldn't do that in twelve weeks. Um, so you know, there are, there are some bonuses to doing Sean because because we we're not held up by that kind of um, labor intensive kind of clay work that we that we um, that we've had in the past. But you know, having said that, I would have, I, it would have been nice to have maybe a few more weeks. You know. Yeah. <laughs> well, it doesn't suffer for the length of the shoot. Certainly, it does look like just as much time has been spent on it. There's no kind of indication that it was in its to its detriment at all. Um, oh, right. The But uh, I suppose the difference between uh, creating a Wallace and Gromit short and creating the Shaun the Sheep is that perhaps the sets already exist and the characters already de- exist and there's only a few extras that need to be created, such as the llamas. That's right, yes. Yeah, I mean, and also I did, I, you know, you're, you're exactly right there. Everything... Everything was there, ready set up, ready to go, and also I had a had a brilliantly well primed and um, experienced crew who had just come off the back of the feature film. So you know, I had a, a fantastic kind of support. I mean, the actual physical making of the film on the studio floor was very very pleasurable, as it always is, because the crew is so they just know what to do. You know. Mm. You, you, it, it's almost, it's almost like one of those things where you think, you think to yourself as the director, if I wasn't here, would it still happen? And <laughs> it probably would, you know, because all the information is there. And as the director, you're, you're kind of the kind of captain of the ship, I guess. You're kind of steering everyone, but as long as they have the information, because we, in, in, during the preparation period, we, um, there are a lot of notes made, and so with the animatic and um, the notes that I've made in preparation for the shoot. A lot of the information is there already. It's the kind of nuances on the on the set that um, I guess make it what it is from my point of view. You know, when I'm when I'm there and you know I have a have an idea on the set and we'll kind of uh, look for the best camera angles with the DOP and um, and and get the lighting right and then we'll probably you know adjust adjust the action but then if you take that away it probably <laughs> excuse me it probably would function pretty well with the information that's there already because they're so they are so good you know they're, they're a great team great team there's some absolutely superb bits of animation in the short as well uh, particularly the bit where the llamas are playing football <laughs> yes yeah so i mean it, it looks so it looks so easy and straightforward but you know, to make a quadruped play football and look so elegant and in control, you know, there's a there's a, a amazing amount of skill there. Um, and you know, I'm 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 an animator myself, as you know, but I, I'm in awe of of what those guys can do. You know, because you go in there as a director and you say, yeah, it'd be great if um, Raoul comes through here with a football and he you know, he does a banana kick over his head and it lands on the other one and he heads it into the goal. 
And, you know, quite often they just go, oh, okay. And I walk out of the unit afterwards and think, wow, you know, where would you start, you know? Yeah. Uh, if that was me being briefed, I'm, 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 you know, totally, totally um, massive respect for the guys that I work with. Um, and um, I'm glad that that comes through. I'm glad people can appreciate that in the, in the, final, in the final film. Mm. Yeah, I just told people which bit to look out for there as well. Without spoiling it too much, but it is an excellent piece of work. Um, the, the, the the other question I wanted to ask you is is your approach to the series uh, and relation to the approach to the short. Shaun the Sheep, the series, does come across as it is made as a slapstick uh, short uh, series of shorts. Obviously, it's made for the CBB's audience, but at the end of the day, it's a slapstick short. Was any kind of notions of pedagogy ignored when this short was being made because obviously it's a completely different audience it's a mainstream christmas yeah. family audience rather than yeah, it just being uh, the kids that, that, that was totally the, the brief was was um that it was for this broader family audience it wasn't just aimed at the cbbc audience um which you know funnily enough a lot of adults watch as well, and so you know it, it does have quite a wide audience already. But you know, part part of the remit of the of the film was that it, it could be slightly more grown up, and you know certainly that was something I was keen to do. I, it wasn't I, you know, I didn't want to abandon everything that Sean stands for. You don't want to kind of, you know, you can't throw all of that away because it's what people expect. But mm. at the same time, I was, I was really hopeful we were able to kind of um, push it a little closer to what you would expect from Wallace and Gromis. And, uh, you know, at times I think maybe, you know, the finished film doesn't represent it, but at times during the development process, I think that possibly <laughs> my ambition was to take it too far, you know, too dark. And and there was a point where, you know, some of the things we got, the llamas were at one point probably more evil you know, they were more villainous, more nefarious, um, and it just felt wrong. You know, there, there are points where you, you kind of you have you have a goal and you have an ambition for what you want to achieve with these characters, but but you have to be aware of of the world that they're in. And it, it was really clear, I think, that to give these kind of quadrupeds too much human intelligence just Kind of, it just felt weird, um, and so he kind of reined it back a bit. But you know, there's still, as, as as you said, you know, there's still an element of them being they're quite, they are quite, um, they can be quite kind of ruthless and selfish, um, hedonistic. Uh, probably something that we're not used to seeing in Sean's world. And, and you know, certainly as things go on and it gets more out of control, we start to see. Um, you know, a much darker element in the world. Um, but I think that that's good because I think it's quite nice to explore outside the comfort zone sometimes. But I do think, I do think, and, you know, I'm fully aware that some people are going to find it a little bit too much. And, you know, I'm, I'm, you know an underlying worry is that some of the younger viewers are maybe going to find the alarm is a little bit too disturbing. So, you know, it's trying to tailor it so that it's it's exploring new things, but without alienating your fan base. Um, and hopefully, it doesn't do that. You know, I, I hope it doesn't. But um, there's always that danger when you introduce when you introduce anything into something that's so established. I think you're always going to be um, uh, at risk of upsetting some of your your fan base. Um,
It does. Uh, it does get a little hairy at the end with yeah. the, with with the llamas, particularly. They do turn, um, which is uh, which which could probably be seen as a little bit scary. But if kids are scared of that, then they just need toughening up. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm with you on that. I mean, I I, th- I actually think that most kids have seen much scarier stuff. Yeah. You know, the llamas. They, they don't. They don't actually. I mean, there's there's some kind of physical menace in there, I suppose, but it never actually gets realised, and you know, we resolve it, and um, uh, everything ends up back as it was at the end, which is you know reset nicely, so people can go to bed without feeling frightened of llamas. But um, you know, I, I I personally think it's a it's a nice thing to challenge the audience a bit. Um, yeah. But there are always going to be people that really like it the way it is. You know, they kind of it's a it's a upsetting the equilibrium, isn't it? Um, well, llamas are horrid creatures, isn't it? and you've, you've, you've really, you've really taken these horrid creatures and caricatured them in a way which could only really be done. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad it works. Yeah, um, I mean they're great fun, and the llamas were great fun to do. I mean, you know, taking, taking, you know, they're, they're stretched out sheep. I mean, that that was the attraction of the llamas, really, as well. It's the fact that it was something that Sean. Sean could find strangely familiar, even though they're exotic and unusual. There's there's a kind of family resemblance, and you know, tried to carry that through in the design as well. Um, and and so the materials we used were not exactly the same as the sheep, but they were in the same world. Uh, at one point, when we were doing the development work, I was experimenting with uh, a much longer, hairy kind of look, more more kind of like a llama fleece, I guess. Um, which kind of worked. They look good as standalone designs, but actually, when you put them alongside the sheep and the farmer, and on the farm, they just looked a bit strange. It's almost too much detail. It's that, it's that kind of taking taking the reality and just caricaturing a little bit, I guess. And, and I, I, you know, I was really pleased with the way that the the, the llamas kind of turned out because um, I, I think they they look like they're from the world rather than something we've just taken and dumped in there. Mm. You've got some royal fans of this short, haven't you? <laughs> yeah, we were we were um, we were very lucky to have a, a premiere at BEFTA a few weeks ago, um, and um, uh, so uh, we had uh, the three young royals there: Prince uh, William and Princess Catherine and Prince Harry. And it was a BEFTA. It was something that they do. It was a charities forum, they call it, and so it was a it was a kind of collection of all of the. Uh, the Royals charities and they come together every two years I think it is and they put on this special occasion and um, they invite all the all the charities along and lots of children there and um, so we had this event up at BEFTA in I think it was in um, October and um, they came along and, and they did welly wanging and made their own Sean the Sheep and um, and then we screened the film uh, twice for for um, all the children that were there, and they, it, it went down very well, and nobody coming out in tears, which was reassuring. Um, and so, yeah, it was great fun. You know, it's great fun to have that. Um, although I'm not sure that they, they couldn't actually watch it on the day. Um, they assured me they they were going to watch it themselves. And um, Prince William did tell me that uh, Prince Charles is a big fan of Shaun the Sheep, and so he was going to be sitting down to watch it over Christmas. So that was very nice. That's wow, nice that kind of royal seal. Sean the Sheep by Royal Appointment. <laughs> yes, yes. Excellent. <laughs> Very lucky. So uh, so what's next for Sean and what's next for Jay? Um, well, I, I, Sean 
currently, Golly is working um, on a sequel idea. Um, so uh, I think let's watch this space on that one. I think the plan is to, to um, uh, go into production on that. Uh, is that sorry? Is that for a feature? Point in the future, I don't know exactly when. Is that for a feature? So, sorry, or is that for a uh, short? Uh, that's a feature. Mm-hmm. That's a feature. So um, I think uh, that that will go into production at some point in the next year or so. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking off the top of my head there, so I don't know that for sure. Um, uh, so that's going on. Um, I'm not sure whether there's going to be more serious work for Sean in the near future. Probably not. Um, another half hour has been mentioned, depending on the the, um, the timings, uh, which would be fun. So I'm kind of thinking about that tentatively. Um, and then for me, I'm I'm kind of I'm developing developing a few ideas myself at the moment um, outside of Ardman um, and I've just actually recently just been kind of uh, taking a bit of breathing space to let it all digest because actually it's funny filmmaking is great fun but it's incredibly tiring and, and demanding and so suddenly when you stop have a few weeks when you, you don't do it you kind of suddenly your mind kind of clicks back into place and all those everyday things that you uh, have been pushing to one side kind of slot in so I've been doing that for the past week or two um, so yeah I'm just um, I've, I've got a few things kind of bubbling away but nothing nothing definite right now well thanks for taking time out of uh, your your relaxing uh, after after the the hard slog uh, of, 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 of making this short uh, to speak to Squiggly it has been an amazing year for Sean the Sheep uh, with the feature and with this short film which audiences I'm sure will agree with me when they see it um, over the Christmas period. So, Jay, thank you very much for speaking to Squiggly today. Absolute pleasure, Steve. Thanks very much for, um, for, for having me on. It's been great. That was Jay Grace, director of the Farmer's Llamas, the Sean the Sheep Christmas special. The documentary that we talked about earlier on is going to be shown on BBC One at 2.25pm uh, on Boxing Day. And uh, later that day, Boxing Day, Sean the Sheep Farmer's Llamas will be shown at 6.15pm. Boxing Day. Yes. So when you're all filled with leftovers and booze, you can watch the Farmer's Llamas. But on Christmas Day, Ben, is Stickman uh, on Christmas Day at 4.45pm. That's, that's prime post-gorging time. It is. It to is. sort of unwind, let the, uh, let the various meats and beverages digest hmm. and uh, watch the adventures of Stickman. Now, Stickman is uh, from... It's Magic Light, yes, the people who did the Graffalo films and uh, Room on the Broom. It, it certainly is, yes. Um, they ad- adapted uh, Julia Donaldson and Axel Scheffler's fantastic children's books into these wonderful Christmas classics. Yeah, they certainly have a pretty uh, uh, strong reputation. Not only do they do well as sort of Christmassy films, they then sort of do well and they kind of uh, they get a lot of uh, industry praise. I think that one of the things that people have picked up on in particular is how they adapt uh, a story idea usually extend it, usually embellish it with a lot of extra sort of visual concepts and ideas, but remain really, really true to the original text of the books. And so they don't sort of change things and change the ideologies behind a story, like, say, we were talking before about certain adaptations of Roald Dahl books, stuff like that. But they actually, they're true to it, but that becomes a bigger thing in and of itself. Yeah, they they really are anchored by the, the source material, which is great. Because if it's if it's not broke, you need to figure out which bits are broke, and you know don't try and fix it. Because it's, I mean, we we talk fondly about the Roald Dahl classics there, 
um, because that was from our childhood, Ben. And we're a little bit too old <laughs> for uh, the Gruffalo and the Julia Donaldson and Axel Scheffler stuff, but there will be kids watching this that will have been read um, Stickman, will have been read The Gruffalo, will have been read Room on the Broom, Gruffalo's Child. And so to them, to see it uh, translated is such an exciting thing to see it, it you know, brought to life as they've only seen once before in their imagination. So it's got to be done properly. I think also the, there's an element of, because I think a lot of the people who do listen uh, in on these podcasts are parents and they read the books to their kids. Hmm. So I know that certainly when The Room and the Broom came out a couple of years back, there was quite a lot of, you know, sort of positive feedback about that from the parents who listened to the podcast about what a good job they did with the adaptation. Mm. So yeah, I think that there are certain different tiers of appreciation. I think for uh, for the likes of you or I who have yet to breed, I mean, that day may come, God help us all. Not together. <laughs> well, again, <laughs> you know, the day is young. You know, I think that if we weren't doing what we were doing, we probably, it might kind of pass us by, but I think that's sort of nice that there's a certain extra degree of visibility in that respect. I think also for something like Sean the Sheep, uh, it's a little bit different because it's not an adaptation. It is more like a sort of like family-oriented thing. But I do think that families can gather around, watch an animated adaptation of like a children's storybook and be quite happy with it. Mm. Like I say, it's that prime post-dinner time where everyone's in a bit of a haze. It's good sedentary mood yeah. to watch something you know innocuous and fun to watch. You know, I really liked the music of this. Mm. The music was very soothing. Yes. Really sort of helps with the atmosphere, really kind of helps with the emotion of a main character that, let's face facts, kind of looks like the Pepperami guy. <laughs> yes, yeah. I was kind of expecting him to uh, sort of morph into Aid Edmondson and start <laughs> freaking out. Because he, he doesn't have a great time in this film. It, should, it could basically be called Stickman's Bloody Awful Day. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's a bloody awful year, isn't it? All the seasons go through, and I expect him to get home. I'm home! And she's remarried. <laughs> and like, she's got, there's this guy sat there smoking a pipe with his slippers on in the chair. <laughs> it's like, well, this is awkward. <laughs> we searched for you for a good couple of days. and So yeah, quite a lot of peril and uh, uh, drama this character goes through, I guess. Poor old uh, Jennifer Saunders narrating it. She sounds like she can barely take it. Yeah. <laughs> By the end, she sounds like she's falling apart. It's like, Jesus Christ, very good actor. But uh, calm down, Jenny, it's a stick. <laughs> You'll be all right. <laughs> There's some great voice acting in it, isn't there? You've got um, Hugh Bonneville, who, I don't know, if I had to cast a Santa Claus, I don't think I'd cast any other now. He's great in the in, in the show as Santa Claus. But Russell Tovey as the dog, just really getting in as a dog, really enjoying himself. <laughs> and as, uh, as Michael says in the, in the interview, uh, he actually brought his dog into the studio. <laughs> sort of, maybe he didn't have anyone to babysit the dog. And Rob Brydon, who's who's become kind of a lucky charm for these shorts, he plays a few voices. And Sally Hawkins uh, as the as the stick lady wife. The stick lady yes. wife. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, it's kind of more. You feel more like the cast is is present than say in um, Room on the Broom. I mean the uh, the dragon thing in Room on the Broom. That was a who was that again? Oh, that was um, Timothy Spall, wasn't it? Right. Yeah. I mean, he he had some dialogue but it felt a bit weird like having Gillian Anderson like placid as like the main character 
And she literally says yes like four times. <laughs> yeah. If, if I'm not mistaken, isn't that like her only line in the whole film? <laughs> I think it is, yeah. Oh, you forgot to mention Martin Freeman is uh, is actually Stickman in this, the the, the star of the show, mm. which is a, a bit of great casting. He's going to be on uh, all over Christmas, isn't he, with, with the Sherlock Christmas special as well. One of the things that I um, feel is quite important about films like these, and I think that you know, is is definitely present in this. For films that I think surely linger in the minds of the children who watch them is that there is a message to take away, you know, and the message of Stickman I thought was a particularly important one for young, impressionable minds. Tell me the message, Ben. Never leave the house, (laughs) ever. For the love of God, because everything will kill you. Yeah. Basically, the moment you step outside, no one will understand you. Everyone will make your life miserable. Just stay in. Yeah, it's a very pertinent message. I think that it's certainly going to help breed a new generation of animators. <laughs> yes, yes. Or just a lot of deviant art accounts. We'll see. We shall see. Anyway, lovely film. Um, if you've got young'uns, then uh, you know, bang it on. I'm sure they'll love it. Uh, if you just want to watch something calming and pleasant with uh, nice music and atmosphere... Bang it on then as well. Yeah, it, it's on in that period of the day, as you say, after the Christmas dinner. And after Grandma's forced you to watch the Queen's speech. So you can say, yeah. hey, Grandma, whoa, you made us watch the Queen's speech. We're going to watch Stickman now. You probably tell Grandma it is the Queen's speech. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Queen's not looking very <laughs> she looks very, looks very thin, doesn't she? So who, are we, who do we have from Stickman on the podcast? We've got the producer, Michael Rose. Uh, Michael's been on the podcast before, so he's a returning guest. He uh, came to talk about The Room on the Broom a couple of years ago. Excellent. Here is Michael Rose, the producer of Stickman. This podcast will be going out before Christmas, so for those that haven't seen the uh, the Radio Times and circled what they want to watch this year, could you tell us a little bit about The Stickman? Uh, yes, I mean, Stickman is um, another book from the extraordinary imaginations of author Julia Donaldson and uh, illustrator Axel Scheffler. And it was uh, published by Scholastic Books in 2008. And it tells the story uh, of a stick man who um, gets taken away from, from his family tree where he lives with his stick lady love and their stick children three. <laughs> and he gets taken on a series of adventures. Or he gets embroiled in a series of adventures to take him ever further away from home. Um, and, and he has to get back home in time for Christmas. Excellent. Let's not spoil what happens. It follows on the tradition that yourself and Magic Light have had the past few years, with starting with The Gruffalo, then The Gruffalo's Child, and recently Room on the Broom, with creating these kind of Christmas classics, I suppose it's fair to say. What do you think makes a Christmas film? I, I think that the... Uh, we, we make... I mean, Stickman has has lots of snow, and it's also got Santa Claus in it, so it's, it's decisively a Christmas film. Um, but we really set out to make uh, a event family viewing. We want to we want to sort of create a moment where the whole family can watch something together. And certainly in the UK, um, the time for that is you know Christmas on you know, Christmas television, really. So um, uh, you know what what makes it, I think, is is a, is a great story great characters, something that can appeal to kids, but also to, uh, you know, parents, carers, grandparents, the extended family, to all watch together. So I think that space is increasingly important in a, in a world where, um, you know, all our lives are, are so dominated by 
uh, you know, uh, communications, tech, social media, and other things which distract us. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Distract us in a good way sometimes. But, yeah. Well, yeah. Hopefully, hopefully there, there'll be a few communications about this interview that people will, will be able to um, use to watch the, yeah. uh, the, the the show. Um, it's another, uh, it's another wonderful, like you say, Christmas event, uh, family event, and, and with that, you kind of attract uh, voice artists. So, can you tell us a little bit about who's in this uh, this one? Yeah, we've, we've got a fantastic voice cast. I mean, I think we've been very fortunate in, in all these films. Um, but so, in this, we've got Martin Freeman as the voice of Stickman. Uh, Jennifer Saunders is, is the narrator. Um, we've got um, Hugh Bonneville as Santa. We've got Russell Tobey as the dog. Um, we've got Sally Hawkins um, uh, playing Stick Lady in a variety of other female roles. And we've got Rob Brydon, who's come back actually for the fourth fourth of these films in, in succession. He's been in all four, and he's playing the snail and the frog and, and a bunch of other male roles. So it's, it's a fantastic voice cast. It's also seven kids' roles as well. Has he become a, uh, a bit of a lucky charm then, Rob Brydon, would you say? Oh, I hope so. Yeah, no, it's it's wonderful, I and mean, we we sort of ring him up in trepidation each time because we you know, he's massively busy, hmm. uh, and he's been great at making time to do to do them, and, and he's such an extraordinary uh, actor and versatile artist that it's it's, fun, it's you know, just great fun having him in the cast. Yeah, there's certainly even even though the lines that these famous names are getting, they're, they're, they are very short screen time. There's an awful lot of enthusiasm put into each performance. Russell Tobey's dog, in particular, uh, is a favourite of mine in the actual short. Well, Russell Tobey, I mean, he's he's a, you know obviously a huge talent, and um, uh, but he's 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 a great fan of dogs, and he has a, he has a small dog who he brought to the recording with him, uh, and he kind of barked inappropriately at various times. So, but so <laughs> work around that. But he's a great dog enthusiast, and you can hear that in, in his performance. Uh, so, but I, I think for us, it's actually because because they don't have many lines that the quality of the voice is all the more important. I mean, voices, of course, are always hugely important um, in, in any animated film. But uh, you know what these really top performers performers do is they can even in a few lines take you on a character journey, and that's their skill as actors. So let's go from 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 one set of actors to to another set of actors being the animators. Um, and the guys that have put this together. Could you tell us a little bit about the team that helped create the, the animation? Yeah, so, so the film has been directed by Jeroen Jaspart. Um, if I, hopefully I pronounced that right. He's, he's uh, from Flemish origins, but this lives in London. Um, and he worked with co-director Daniel Snadden. And, so da- and Daniel Snadden is based at Triggerfish Studios, Animation Studios in Cape Town, in South Africa. So... Uh, the production took place between London and South Africa. Uh, all the animation was done in uh, a trigger fishing Cape Town, and um, you know it's a very uh, uh, it's, it's a very dynamic emerging animation industry there, and a lot of lot of great talent. But am I right in saying that the previous ones were made in Germany as well? That's right. We the, the first three films we made in, in different ways. We made them at uh, with uh, at Studio Soy in uh, Ludwigsburg outside Stuttgart in Germany. So it's kind of an international handshake going on with each 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 sort of um, film, really. Well, I think for us, it's about um, uh, finding. I mean, we want we like to make the films all in one place. Um, so, you know, we, don't, we for us, control is very important to get the quality we we aim for. Um, and then we go really where 
both where the talent is and where um, where we can you know make the budget work as well. Stickman was um, uh, probably the most ambitious of these four films. It has uh, many more characters and sets than the previous three. Um, there's lots of water, you know, lots of lots of snow and ice and effects, um, and so we we decided to make it all in CGI this time. The previous films had model sets and CG characters come together. This mm-hmm. is all CGI, um, although we, we've aimed to get the same look and feel of the sort of modelly feel of the previous ones. That's a, that was another one of my questions was going to be uh, exactly what you mentioned there, is that from watching watching the shot as an animator, an animation, animation enthusiast, I was looking out to see if there were live-action model sets, but uh, it, it tends to be CG with this one. Yeah. But it's very close. It's extremely close to keep that original signature that's been established with the Gruffalo through to Room on the Broom. Well, it's, it's really nice you say that, because uh, Yavoon and Daniel and team um, you know, work like crazy to, to kind of get, get it looking like that. And you know, the, I'm not a technical person, but what they kept saying to me was, well, you know, the, they had to fight against the computer all the time. The computer wants to smooth things out, and we wanted the blemishes and the, uh, you know, the the feel of the grain of real wood. And always, always asking, well, how would we do this in models? You know, how would we create the props and sets in models? Mm-hmm. What, what's that mean? And then try and, you know, approximate to that to that look and texture. Very successfully as well, and as you said as well, for good reason because it's quite an ambitious film with plenty more sets than previous ones. We see also things things that technically could be difficult: sand, snow, the the sea, rivers, different types of water flowing, different types of uh, weather. Was was this a sort of a more ambitious shot from the outset, and did it require more kind of time, technical specifics, or anything like that? Um, I, I think that the, it, it was really, um, uh, you know, it was more ambitious than the other three. And then doing everything in computer in, was was a sort of shift. Um, and I think we thought it would be very slightly easier than it was to, to recreate that model, you know, the model feel of the previous films. It's got to be its own world. It's, it's a different story. It's a different, um, it's set in a more... Uh, the, the first three films were set in a fa- sort of fairy tale world, if you like, and this is set in a, in a more um, uh, in a, a more real world setting. Um, you know, there's a park and there are people and there are houses and so forth. Uh, but we still wanted it to feel part of the family of previous films. Mm-hmm. So you know, it was it was certainly ambitious, and um, it took about twenty months from start to finish, um, and a crew of 125 people, both in South Africa and London. Uh, to accomplish, uh, but I, I'm really pleased with with the results, and, and I must say the people you know the, the people we work with have been absolutely fantastic. That that's something that I, I instantly recognised was that for the first time we see the the people, we had actual human people as opposed to these yeah. um, fantasy characters. I mean, obviously there was the witch and um, room on the broom, but seeing a, a park and, and and something set in something different from the fairy tale world that we've been um, shown before. With this in mind, and with these different worlds being explored. Would you be looking at another um, Julia and Axel creation for future future films? Well, we you know we we've built up a great relationship with Julia and Axel over the years, and they are the leading um, children's picture book uh, team in 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 the UK now. Um, you know they they bring out one new book every every year or every other year, depending on on, on the kind of the 
rhythm of things. Um, and there's something about their work, the way it connects with children and families that's, that's extraordinary. So, you know, we'd love to do more with them in the future. We, we don't yet have um, you know, any firm plans, but we're always thinking about other things we could do with, it, you know, with them and with their work. Mm. Well, just uh, just as a little uh, nudge there, my nephew's favourite is the smartest giant in town. So if you could work one of them out, I'm sure he'd be very pleased. So there you go. That's a, that's a lovely title. <laughs> yes. Um, and then, yeah, like I said, they are a wonderful um, team of, um, of, of children's um, book producers. Um, and so, yeah, I can, I can see why you keep going back to them. Is this something that... Um, is a given or when magic light set out to produce a film for christmas what's the process is it you pick up the book look at it and go right well, let's make this or is it a kind of we'd like to make a christmas film let's look around and you always inevitably end up going back to julia and axel how does it usually work well you know as, as a company we we tend to to do you know just one project at a time and, and really focus on it so we're very careful about what we what we choose to do next um and having having sort of got going with the Ruffalo a number of years ago, you know, of course, we always our first thought is, what other books have Julia and Axel done? You know, what could make a great um, half-hour film? You know, based on their work. But at the same time, we're also thinking about other things all the time, and we've we've always been looking for um, uh, you know something else, something different. We're, at the moment, we are working in production on uh, two half hours based on. Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes, um, which is uh, uh, for, for BBC One at Christmas 2016. So, you know, that's, that's our next pro- project and we're in production on that at the moment. Now, we're, then we're thinking ahead to, to you know, further to, 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 to the future after that. Excellent. But for us, but for us so it's, just, it's about finding the thing that we feel passionate about, that we feel we can add value to, the thing that we feel is, is you know, of, of quality. Two completely um, different um, approaches to children's entertainment from the world of literature. There, Roald Dahl and the the writing and, and illustration style of, of Julia and Axel. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're working on with the uh, the, the the revolting rhymes, or is that under wraps? Well, it's it's, it's yeah, it's under wraps at the moment. It's a little bit early to be talking about it, but I mean, it, it's um, uh, we're we're um, uh, we're very lucky to have got the rights to his fantastic revolting rhymes book where he he retells um six sort of classic fairy tales in a distinctive dal esque voice mm-hmm. and we've we're we're taking those stories and creating two half hour films uh which will be uh for bbc one next next christmas christmas 2016 which is the end of Roald Dahl's centenary year so we're really excited it's a great new project and um yeah you know it's, it's it's again actually we've, we've never set out to do half hour films half hour you know um, half hour films um, per se it's just the, that format A there is a need there's a sort of demand for it much broadcasters and other outlets for this kind of event special and also it, that format fits the material both these Donaldson books and also for the, the you know, Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes but of course we might you know, if we found different, if we took on different material, we could choose to work in a different, we could work in different formats, different medium as well. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Oh, there's plenty to look forward to then, um, coming from Magic Light. That's great. Um, just go back to the working relationship with other countries uh, and getting things created, um, going to Germany, going to Cape Town, going around the world to get these things made. 
when the Gruffalo was created, uh, I believe it was created in a time where British animation was it it was it was having difficulties, shall we say? And since then, the tax breaks have come into effect, and companies are now beginning to kind of stretch their legs a little bit. And animation production in the UK is becoming easier. Is there a possibility of working within the UK? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, our, our first our first sort of thought, and our first first phone calls has always happened to work in the UK because, you know, it'd be lovely not to have to travel so extensively and, you know, be able to stay home and do things. Um, and and the, the quality of talent in the UK is, is obviously, you know, exceptionally high. Um, we've, um, these, these films we do are, are really very expensive and quite hard to finance. Um, and so, uh, you know, we, we would like to in the UK so far, it's even with the tax credit, which I think is a tremendous innovation and you know, a huge boost to the British industry. Um, but we've still found it more cost-effective to, to produce outside the UK. Uh, we, of course, do a lot of work in the UK, mm-hmm. um, and, and we still, you know, part of our work does qualify for the UK tax credit. But you know, we found certainly the stick man, because it was so much bigger than the previous films, um, that, that it, it, you know, we, we could get more value for our money going to, to South Africa, and we, and we also get you know, um, tax credits there. Do you have any particular moments that the, the audience should look out for? Do you have any particular favourite moments yourself from the from the short? Um, well, I, I, inevitably, having just finished it, I, I love it all, really. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think there are lots of charming, charming you know, moments, both, both happy and sad in it, and uh, hopefully uh, the audience will feel that they've... Uh, well, those who know the book will feel that that it's made, um, you know, the transition to film is a world they, it's different, but it's a world they recognise, and that everyone will feel that they go on this this great adventure, this great journey with Slick Man. Excellent. Michael Rose, thank you very much for talking to Swiggly today. Thank you very much. That was Michael Rose, Stick Man. It will be on Christmas Day, so tune in. BBC One, Christmas Day, 4.45 until 5.15pm. Smashing. Well, I hope that's infused some seasonal energy into all of you. I'm sure this many years has gone by, you probably rely on the Squiggly Animation Podcast to actually put you in the Christmas spirit. And uh, boy, howdy, have we delivered, eh? Absolutely. We are more traditional now than the Queen's speech. A damn sight more entertaining. Do you ever see the Queen banging on about how Bebop and Rocksteady should have been in The Secret of the Ewes? No. You don't. She's supposed to be our monarch and she doesn't deliver. Well, I think that's... Oh, uh, no, that's not all she wrote for 2015. We will uh, squeeze in a uh, pre-New Year's episode. Well, I certainly hope so. Now that I've said it, I've... I've... you got to do it now, Ben. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, stick around for that. We'll be sure to be entertaining. Be sure to ring in the New Year with some class and style. Because that's how we roll. With class and with style. Yes. Those two things. So, yes, as always, keep checking into squiggly.com or squiggly.co.uk if you like typing extra characters. It'll take you to the same place. We, of course, have our advent calendar on the main page with some uh, very, very talented artists. We're about halfway through now, so uh, plenty more to go, but we've had some really excellent people. We've had uh, Rob Morgan, I think, making his advent calendar debut with a typically uh, grim contribution. Uh, Andy Martin, director of The Planets and Mr. Director and various others. Ross Hogg. Our first uh, 16mm uh, contribution to the advent calendar. Yes, and lovely it is too. Very nice little uh, little loop and gif there. Uh, Steve Kirby, whose film If the Cuckoo Don't Crow has been uh, charming audiences of late, 
Uh, he also recently did a banner for us and uh, a couple of banners for us, as well as Dan Emerson and Sean Cox, young talents on the rise, also recent banner contributors. We've had Alex Collier. We've had uh, Alex Davey. Uh, we've had uh, Emma Reynolds. We've had Lottie. Uh, it's, and, and there's plenty more to come. So uh, every single day on the in the run up to Christmas, our uh, well, I think my favourite one of my favourite squiggly traditions is the advent calendar, and we've got some uh, absolutely fantastic uh, advent calendars uh, coming up. Uh, people you'll know, people you don't know, but every single one of them is absolutely superb. Uh, one of the best things of the times of the year for us, isn't it, Ben? Getting the emails through with the images, and you know, just, just wonderful that it all comes together. It's like a big kind of illustration he knees up, you mm. know. Uh, and you can also check out previous Advent Calendar contributions if you go to the Banners Archive. That's uh, if you click on View More underneath the main squiggly banner. That's the one that's there the year round. And that'll actually show you all the banners that have ever been made for us. Uh, lots of uh, wonderful bits of artwork and looping gifts. Very inspirational stuff. Of course, there's our regular glut of animation coverage worth looking at. Since the last podcast, we have some great interviews up with the likes of Howie Shear, director of the new NFB film BAM!, Boulder Media's Rob Cullen talking about his film Fresh Cut Grass. He also, of course, recently worked on the new Danger Mouse. Snowfall director Connor Whelan, the Spin Kick Brothers, they have a new web series with Wild Seed called Lone Wolves. Mike Smith, the director of Cooped, a wonderful film we screened at MAF last month. And Peter Sohn and Denise Reem, the director and producer, respectively, of The Good Dinosaur. And also from the Pixar camp, Pete Doctor and Jonas Rivera, the director and producer of Inside Out, now available to buy just in time for the holidays. And on that note, we also have some seasonal gift suggestions for the animator in your life, compiled by Laura Beth Cowley, an overview of MAF, as well as 2015 film highlights from new contributor Heather Wiggins, not to mention animator and historian Stephen Cavalier's ongoing article series, 100 Greatest Animated Shorts, which are always great fun. And that's all there at squiggly.com. Keep an eye on us on Twitter at squiggly, as well as facebook.com slash squiggly magazine. You can follow me on Twitter at Ben L. Mitchell, also facebook.com slash Ben Mitchell Creative and ben-mitchell.co.uk. Steve Henderson is on Twitter at Mr. Underscore S underscore Henderson. Special thanks to our guests, Michael Rose of Magic Light. Visit magiclightpictures.com, as well as the Farmers Llamas director, Jay Grace of Ardman. Of course, you can learn more at admin.com and seantheSheep.com. So have a fantastic holiday season, whatever you may celebrate, and be sure to check back before the new year for a very special podcast to close out what's been a superb year for Squiggly. And thanks to all of you for listening and reading and supporting the site by spreading the word. It's always really lovely to see and much appreciated indeed. Until next time, to all a good night. You got an animation Christmassy thing. Squiggly podcasters, the the, the ones you call. And call they did. I look forward to speaking to them later on. Mm-hmm. Well, which, well, who, uh, who the what the fing air? Uh. <laughs> 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 I've already started drinking, as you can see. <laughs>